So please turn with me to John 15. We'll begin in that chapter today. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses of this chapter. Should be a familiar set of verses to you. Jesus makes the claim that he is the the vine. We are the branches. We're going to look at what that means today. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help with this text. Lord Jesus, as we open your word, we read from it and you have painted many pictures and you have said many things about yourself and we are thankful for the whole counsel of your word that teaches us what they mean. And so as we open your word, we pray that you would guide us to the truth, that you would convict us of our sin where it is, that you would lead us to serve you better, that you would lead us to abide in you as you have called us to in this passage. In your name we pray. Amen. So as I prepared for this message, I was reminded of a story uh, from the summer that I worked uh, for the University of Missouri. They have a farm research facility in southeast Missouri, and I worked there a couple summers. And it's kind of like farming, and it's kind of like science at the same time. Um, I, the doctors do the science part. I get to do the, the grunt part. But it was still fun. And so uh, it's called the Missouri Delta Center. And I worked for the irrigation department that summer. And we did everything from, like, traditional methods of irrigation. Like, you know, you see these giant rigs that walk down the field that spray water or uh, like laying pipes at the end of the field and that sort of thing to experimental uh, irrigation methods like drip tape and sprinkler systems. Drip tape is this... Um, Basically, think of a water hose with a bunch of holes in it that you put underground, uh, and it was it was always fun to put in because uh, you had to bury it pretty deep. But anyway, uh, so lots of good time. It was an interesting mix of people, college students like myself, and then you had these lifetime farmhands who were hardened and knew what they were doing, and then you had like the PhDs who were kind of scattered all the time, and so it made for an interesting summer. Um, the college students, like myself, were usually told what to do by the farmhands. We lacked experience and wisdom. Even though we were, quote-unquote, educated, we knew nothing about what was going on in a farm, really, All right, and particularly working for this research station. And these farmhands knew everything. And so one day, I was dropped off with this giant roll of drip tape and asked to cut 50 pieces of drip tape, each of them a hundred feet long, and lay them in the middle of the rows of cotton that we were in. Sounds pretty easy, right? And we're going to come along and connect them later and turn them on and, and watch the magic unfold. And they said, all right, this job should take you about two hours, and then we'll come pick you up. Well, it took me the the whole day because I had a better way to do it. Just pretty much the way that I always think about things. Anytime someone asks me to do something, I'm like, well, this could, I could totally do this more efficiently than they've told me to do it. And that's kind of been my MO since the time I was born. And I always end up spending more time doing things than I should because of that. But that's just the way that I am. So I was told that I should take each piece one at a time. If you can imagine these giant strips of drip tape, pretty flimsy, um, 
pretty flimsy material and put them in the row and then go back, cut another one, put it in the row. A lot of walking. So I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut one and then just drag them out and cut, a, cut them all at once. And so I had a hundred there. And then I drug them all to the middle of the field all at once, and I was going to separate them when I got out there. But, you know, I'm pretty smart. I'll just do this this way. I'll sort them all out. It's going to save me some time. I can have a little bit of time when they come pick me up. I'll be sitting here goofing off. Well, of course, the old farmers were right, because the rest of the day, I sat in the dirt, untangling nearly a mile of drip tape. And uh, they left me to do it alone. And uh, so I could sit about sit and think about how efficient I had been. So I was there till like seven o'clock that evening doing that. Good times. We can probably all think of a story like this, at least on some level, where we all had this better way, and it ended up being a bad idea. Maybe it's something like completely benign, like my drip tape story, or maybe it's something a little more serious that had more serious consequences. That's the way with sin, though, right? That's what sin is. God has a particular plan laid out in the pages of Scripture for how we should live, what we should do, yet we kind of toss it to the curb readily because we want to be the boss. We want to do it our way. Our way is better. started with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Sure enough, as their children, we do the same thing. Our children do the same thing. Their children will do the same thing so forth. Jesus understands his people's proclivity to wander and to do stupid things. So he gives us a teaching like the one that we have here in this text today, in John 15, to remind us that it is with him that is the right place to be, and that following his word is what we should be doing. And so as we consider what it means when Jesus calls himself the true vine, we're going to look at three main ideas. And first is the identity of the vine and the branches, the definition of abiding in Christ, and the reason that we abide in Christ. So let's look together at the text, standing together as we do so. John 15, verses 1 through 11. John 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the world that or the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch, and withers, and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. And so first, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the identity of the vine and the identity of the branches. Jesus begins the text by saying, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Seems kind of out of nowhere, right? He's in four he's talking in fourteen he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Then he starts in talking about he's the vine. Interesting. Well, First thing to note here is that this is another one of Jesus' I am statements. And the I am statements of Jesus point to his deity. They point to himself being the revealed nature or the revealed person of the Old Testament types and pictures. And so we've spent some time in the past looking at that. So I don't want to dwell too long on, on that particular idea. But it's important that we note that when Jesus says, I am, he is placing himself as the second person of the Trinity, placing himself in time past and in time present. Particularly in this passage, we'll see its connection to the Old Old Testament history, which we'll see in a second. He can do that. Why? Why can he do that? Let's be reminded of this. What does he say about himself in Revelation? I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. He exists then and now, and he alone among all humanity can make that claim because he alone is the God-man. So let's ground ourselves in that truth this morning. Secondly, he states that he is the true vine as opposed to the false vine. And so where does this idea of the vine come from? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to ground ourselves here from the Old Testament. Because when Jesus speaks, he's normally saying something he said a long time ago. And here he said it through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5. Look at the first seven verses here. Remember the context of Isaiah. People of Judah sinned against the Lord. He's about to bring in some captives in the nation of Babylon to take them over. And so here's a prophecy concerning that. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it in with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done with it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, 
and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for and he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold an outcry. What do we hear here? That the vineyard is the house of Israel. The vines are his people that he has taken care of, that he has prepared a place for. Remember, he brought them out of Egypt. He prepared a place for them in the promised land, only to see them produce wild grapes or a foreign kind of fruit. Another translation for this wild could be like stinking or spoiled. Nonetheless, whatever it means, the idea here is that the grapes that were produced were bad and weren't wanted. We know this because what happened after they produced the wild grapes? The Lord wrecked the vineyard, and he sent the Babylonians in to the nation and sent many of them into exile. Turn with me to Psalm 80. What we read from this morning in our call to worship. So if you're the nation of Israel and you're hearing this from the prophet Isaiah, you're like, okay, this isn't good. And it wasn't good. But what about Psalm 80? Here we hear Israel's plea. Let's look at starting at verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the lands. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. should be familiar to you, right? That's what the Lord said about his vineyard in in Isaiah 5. Why, Why then have you broken down its walls? so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all who move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life that we may call upon your name. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Hopefully you're making a connection here. This is Israel's plea. They're always calling out to the Lord for repentance. If you read through through the scriptures, they're always doing that. Because they're always falling away. They always need repentance. Does this sound familiar at all in your own lives? Sure. But here, they call upon the Lord to remember the vine they brought out of Egypt. Again, from Isaiah 5. 
Why have you broken down the walls? Well, the Lord told them why he did that. Because of their infidelity. Because of their sin, which continues to be a problem. And so look at verses 14 through 18 in particular. They have destroyed us, but let your hand be on the Son of Man, whom you have made strong yourself. Give us life that we might call upon your name. This should all make New Testament sense to us. Who's the one who gives life? Upon whose name shall we call in order to be saved? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the new covenant promises from Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. Who is coming to fulfill this prophecy? Who is the Son of Man, the right hand of God, in whom he has placed his strength? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the true vine? Jesus. I am the true vine. What is he saying? I am true Israel. I am the one, the only one, who followed the law, who kept the commandments. I am the one who will take those things that were broken, the vineyard that was broken, all these things that were broken. I will take all of these things that were broken and I will restore them. I will restore the people of God to God. I will fix that relationship that was broken because of their sin. I will fix the vine to the branches. I will restore the vine to the vine dresser. That's what Jesus is saying here. The disciples probably knew this. They probably at least made this connection. Those aren't the only two places in the Old Testament where the vine and the branches are are talked about. So if Jesus is this true vine, if he is true Israel who has come to save his people through his own sacrifice, then who are the branches? Well, as we read through this text, we see two different types of branches, don't we? We see ones that bear fruit, and we see ones that don't, that are often thrown into fire. And there's a few ways that this has traditionally been interpreted. First, some people see the branches as all people. Everybody in the whole world is the branches. Branches that don't bear fruit are non-believers. And eventually, at the end of days, they're thrown off into the, into the fire. The ones that do bear fruit are Christians. The problem I have with this interpretation is that it suggests a standing kind of relationship between Jesus and the unbelievers. There isn't because of their continued sin. Because Jesus isn't, hasn't atoned for their uh, sin. Another interpretation is that all the branches are Christians. And that branches that are cut off and thrown into the fire are those Christians that lose their salvation somehow. And I've always had a problem with this interpretation for a few reasons. Namely, uh, and most importantly, is the weight of Scripture. Uh, make sure that we understand that salvation is eternal. It's secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not something that simply goes away. Once Jesus decides to keep something for himself, he doesn't readily let go of it, thankfully. And so the weight of Scripture is totally against that interpretation. And besides, how can a pile of burnt uh, ashes be new again and uh, rededicate their life when they decide they want to be saved again? Uh, That gets kind of messy. I don't think that's what's going on here. 
I think the best interpretation of this passage is, has to do with the concepts we've been talking about in Sunday school. The visible and invisible church. Whereas the visible church are all those people, again, that we talked about, who were a part of the covenant community. All of those people who were connected to the covenant blessings. Remember, what did we say the benefits of the visible church were? They're, they're hearing the word preached. We are the visible church. You are hearing the word preached. We are seeing the sacraments. We see the Lord's Supper here every week. We have the benefit of this community with one another. Our children are being raised up under the gospel. That, that is a benefit. This is the visible church that we see. And there, there is that connection then to Jesus. So I would say that that's what it's talking about. In the Old Testament, who would this have been? Anyone who called themselves Israel. These are the branches, but not all branches are actually part of the vine, in that not all branches will bear fruit. Some of them will be cut off and thrown into the fire. And so the ones that remain truly his children, the one whom's the one the ones whom he came to die for, this is the invisible church that we this morning from the larger catechism. I think Matthew 13 is a great help for this. Uh, if you'll turn there with me. Matthew 13. One of my favorite parables. And consequently enough, one of the more difficult parables to understand correctly, I think. Uh, I won't spend time reading it. But... Matthew 13, 1 through 23 is the parable of the sower, and then Jesus explaining the parable of the sower. I encourage you to look at that this week, I think, as a great parallel of this idea of the visible and the invisible church. The seed of the gospel is received in multiple ways, but only grows to fruition in a small group, those who are actually his. But I will turn your attention to verse 24 through 30. Here's another picture of this same idea. Let me read this for us. Matthew 13, 24 through 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. The servants of the masters of the of the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in the field? How does it then how is it then that we have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest gathering weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time we will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first. Bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Again, I think a very good picture of this idea of the visible and invisible church growing up together and separated at the end. I think we see this here with our Lord Jesus' idea with the vine and the branches. Again, reminds me of Matthew 7. Narrow is the way, few will enter, or many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, but I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. We see this prolifically throughout the teachings of Jesus. So, Jesus is the vine. The branches are his visible church. And so, how can we, the true believers in Christ, know what it means to be a part of the vine? 
what it means to bear fruit, as he says, abide in him. And so let's look at that. Let's look at the definition of what it means to abide in Christ. Verses 2 and 3. Let me read them again. Of, of John 15. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus makes a quick delineation here between the two types of branches. And then he tells his disciples, you are clean. You are one of mine, and so now understand what it means to then bear fruit in me. And then he goes on, verses 4 through 10. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, so that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. What words do we hear over and over there? That we should abide in him. We should live in him. This is, first of all, this is not a suggestion. This is not a way to be a better Christian. This is a commandment from our Lord. These are commandment verbs. He is telling us that we should do this. And that we, we learn by abiding that we will bear fruit, even much fruit. And that apart from Him, we can do nothing. By abiding in Him, what is He saying? We have access to the vine. We can ask whatever we wish. And it will be given to us. This is a common refrain in the last few passages that we've looked at. Remember in chapter 14, what did he say? Whoever believes in me will do the work that I am doing. If you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commandments. And you can ask whatever of me and I will give it to you. And then in 8 through 10 he says, bear much fruit and so do what? Prove to be my disciples by abiding in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So what are we to gather from this? What is the overall constant refrain that Jesus is instructing his disciples on the night before he dies? What does he want them to do? Abide in him. What does that mean? Do what he says. Follow his commandments. We have to be careful here. I've heard multi-point sermons about what it means to abide in Jesus. And what do those sermons do, typically? At least the ones that I've heard, they say, well, they're going to give me six things to do. And whatever they are. And we write them down. We put them in our notebooks. We write each one down. We, temp we attempt to do exactly what it says 
because we believe this to be some kind of formula. We get it. I want to abide in Jesus. It's obviously very important. He says to do this. Here's what I should do in order to do that. We might even look around to make sure others are doing what was said to do, right? And like how much better that we're doing those things more than other folks. Or we look at other folks and say, well, they seem to be doing it much better than me. I'm a bad person. And then we mess up. So we feel bad. We feel like we need to kind of start over so we can feel like we used to feel when we were a better Christian than we are today. Because feeling good is the right way to be a Christian. Does this ring a bell to anybody? It should. Interesting how we get stuck in these little routines of doing, wanting to do the right thing, wanting to please the Lord, resetting ourselves, wanting to do the right thing, kind of like uh, what you know, what the old uh, Sisyphean task, where you roll the the ball up the hill and just to see it roll back down, and you start over again. You can never be good enough. You're always going to be dissatisfied with your own effort. You're always going to be dissatisfied with someone else's effort. Right? And generally, this comes from a place of wanting to do good and wanting to do right, but we end up making our own works the pinnacle and keeping those works a means of grace and a means of salvation. That's legalism. So let's be careful here. Is there a list that we should follow? When Jesus says, follow my commandments, is there a list we should follow? Absolutely. There's ten of them. We know those list. We know that list, right? Jesus made sure in the Sermon on the Mount, as a matter of fact, that we would never feel like we were able to keep any of them perfectly. Read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Read through there and, and then come away from it thinking you can keep any one of them. I, I come away thinking, wow, I can't do this. And if, if you read the Sermon on the Mount thinking you can come away from them, then read what our uh, brothers in the 17th century wrote, the larger catechism, and read their thoughts on the Ten Commandments. Read the things that they say we should do because of this commandment, and the things that we shouldn't be doing because of this commandment. It's rather lengthy. It takes a long time to read through. Why? What is the purpose of the law, brothers and sisters? To show us our need for Jesus Christ. And so with that, this admonition to abide in Christ doesn't come with condemnation. I I spent all that time making sure you understood, and and Todd read for us this morning from Romans 8, which is that was the, the whole idea of that chapter. This doesn't come with condemnation. We who are in Christ have his righteousness and can't ever be apart from him. Nor can we ever feel the wrath that is due us because Jesus did that for us. Because his sacrifice for our sin, because of him giving us his righteousness, we are always abiding in him. And so this is not a condemning thing. If you walk away being condemned, you're not hearing it. We have victory over sin and death because of what he did for us. And now we have no condemnation, even still as we walk or as we stumble along with him. Our inability to keep his commandments doesn't change our status with him. That said, what are we told to do, that are, uh, those of us who are in Jesus Christ? Abide in him. 
bear much fruit. We must continue to do what he says. We know that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Therefore, anyone in Christ is changed. And rather, rather than doing the things of the world, they're doing things of the Spirit. We talked about this last week. We read through Romans 8. We talked about what that means. A Christian will show the evidence of abiding of his or her abiding relationship with the Lord. What about those branches that don't produce fruit? Those who are in the church but never act like the church. Those who are only pretending. That's what a branch is doing when it doesn't produce fruit, right? It's pretending to be like the other branches. However, the Lord knows, even if no one else does. The Lord knows. And I want to talk especially to the to kids that are kind of paying attention this morning, because I think this is very important to you. Because a lot of you, we're all, all of you, you're growing up in homes that honor the Lord, that talk about Jesus. You're in a church that preaches Christ, regularly puts you before the means of grace, word, prayer, the Lord's Supper, fellowship with one another, all the things that we do with one another. You are regularly hearing Jesus Christ. You have been given every opportunity to see and hear the truth, yet you must still abide in Christ. You must show fruit as one who has been called to God in repentance. This isn't your parents' faith. You have to do this on your own. Simply being here, going to church, doesn't save you. Simply playing the Christian part doesn't do anything. There are a lot more fun things to do if you just want to pretend. So remember what you hear every week. How can you be saved? Call upon the name of the Lord. Then you'll be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. Confess him alone as Lord, and you can be saved. And again, we're thankful for all of our kids. I love all the kids here. But we want you to know that we always want to be a church that talks about our faith with each other. And I think we do that, that answers hard questions about the faith. And so for you kids, feel free to ask anything, anytime, concerning your faith. Any doubts that you have. We are one big family here. We do this together. Talked to a man yesterday. He's an atheist. Talked about how his terrible upbringing, how he was, how he was whipped for questioning the faith. We don't play that game. You guys are welcome to ask any question, anytime, ever. And you won't be condemned for it. And that brings us to the last point. The reason we abide in Christ. Why do we do this? We have a full salvation in Christ without any fear of condemnation. So technically there is no need to follow his commands in that following them doesn't save us. It doesn't make us any more loved by him. So why do we do it? Two reasons the text gives us. Look at verses 7 and 8 real quick again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. By this, my Father is glorified. Consider this a moment. What does it mean to glorify the Father? It means to make his name great. 
to see his renown spread across the land. And how can we do that? By doing what he says. Think about how many times you've seen the name of Christ drugged through the mud on television, even lately. And why, typically? Because Christians, Christians are doing something stupid or mistreating people. They themselves are dragging the name of Christ through the mud. And, of course, the unbelievers are going to pick up on it. Again, Christians do stupid things sometimes. We all do. And sometimes everyone is watching, sadly. However, consider this. Consider how we could bring glory to the name of Christ simply by doing the things that he's asked us to do. And let me encourage you in this, brothers and sisters, because like I said, we, we, we struggle with even the simplest of commandments. We struggle with the first commandment that he gave us, not to put any gods before him. That's the hardest one. Well, consider just the things that involve Christian character. Humility, generosity, patience, kindness. The parts of being a Christian that not only bring glory to God, but also bring a real minister to a real benefit to us as we minister to folks. It's just a good thing to treat people nice. And we can really bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ just simply by doing the being like him as we go through this through this world. I could go on and on here, but I think you understand how Jesus is magnified when people act as he's taught us to. And so second, what does he say? Verse 11, he says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Consider the story that I began with. Those old farmhands that gave me the instructions to do one piece of tape at a time. Did they do that because they wanted to prove how much better they were at farming than me? I think everyone knew how much better they were than farming than me, except for me. Um... Did they want to stifle my creativity as a person? Did they want to somehow ruin me? No. They wanted the job to be done right, and they wanted me to have an easy time with it. Consider that. Consider how God gives us commandments. Does he want to make us miserable people by giving us arduous and horrible laws to follow? No. What does he do? He calls us to love him. He calls us to love our neighbor and says that those two things sum up his entire law. What's wrong with those things? In closing, which one of us could truthfully say that when we have loved and cared for someone else, that it was a real hardship and disservice to us and it brought the opposite of joy to us? We can't say that. We all experience joy when we love people. We all experience joy when we are loving our Creator. Because that's what He's called us to do. He has called us to abide in Him and thus experience this kind of joy. So Christian, the question for you is, do you want to experience real joy in your lives? you want to see the name of Jesus Christ be made famous? Here in Murray, you want to see lives changed. And what are we called to do? Abide in Him. Do as He has instructed us to. And know this, we won't be perfect. 
but we don't have to be because of Jesus. However, let us live as we ought to, and let us experience this full joy that he has promised us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction to us. All of your laws are wonderful. All of your laws are great. And they are all summed up in two very simple things, to love you and to love others. Help us to do that. Help us to see the joy that we are missing out on by not doing that. Help us to see how we can minister to others simply by abiding in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.